This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. In 2003, Nike signed 13-year-old Freddie Adu to a seven-figure contract. But Freddie didn't live up to the hype. He has turned down every single documentary project looking closely at the details of his career. Until now. People are going to look at everything you did because of the hype surrounding your arrival and what they think you can be. I'm Grant Wall, and this is American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, from Blue Wire Podcasts. everyone and welcome to our first December edition of Hardwood Knox in 2020. This is Adam Frommel here with my co-host Dan Favalli and today we are going to be going over some recent news items around the NBA. Uh, I think we'll touch on Zion Williamson potentially playing small forward for the New Orleans Pelicans which is just not a good description of, of how he looks on a, ba- on a basketball court. Uh, we'll be talking about Kemba Walker's knee injury and what that could mean for the Boston Celtics. And then we'll be diving into the readers submitted and listeners submitted questions for our mailbag. Uh, Before we dive into all of that, a shout out to our sponsors, betonline.ag and Indeed. As always, you'll be hearing from them shortly. And Dan, how's it going today? Everything is good on my end. As I told you before the podcast started, my two puppies decided to, well, one of them just decided to get out and they normally listen to me, but Thor just kept going this time and he ran into my neighbor's front yard where my neighbor was doing some yard work, but had his three enormous dogs on the other side of his fence. And they're nice dogs, but my dogs are so tiny. Um, so he ran up to the fence and was being a fake tough guy with them. And it took me so long to to get a hold of him. I can... I can say safely say I'm not looking forward to explaining the story to Aang when she gets home from work. That's all I can say. Was it a fake tough guy thing or a real tough guy thing? No, it was, he's a fake tough guy because every time they barked back at him, he like jumped back like six inches to, to a foot. I feel like that's a good problem to have with dogs, though. Fake tough guyness. I mean, he's a friendly dog, yeah. but it's like yeah, exactly. He needs to listen. I'm not. I was out of breath when I started talking to you. I was not happy. You were. I can confirm. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Um, just uh, just still trying to wrap my head around how quick this NBA offseason is going with free agency, the draft, training camps, and preseason games all squished together so tightly. It's I think we're both realizing just how difficult it is to fit all of our typical offseason activities into this expedited time frame, whether it's like the, the team previews that we've typically done on Hardwood Knox or some of the projects in NBA math where we're going to have to figure out how to do those with an even quicker turnaround. Uh, so it's uh, it's been a, a challenging time from that perspective. Yeah, and look, over here at Harwood Knox, we're going to try and do our usual semi-deep dives into every team. Um, I have guests lined up for many, and I'm going to try and get through as many as possible, but there may be a podcast where you and I are just handling the stragglers that we could not schedule because that is such as the nature of this 
this offseason with the draft free agency and basically the start of the season just all folding into one like two week span, just absolutely melting my brain at the moment. Fortunately, you and I like talking about just about every single team in the NBA, uh, which I hope all the listeners appreciate. And if you do, go ahead and give us a, a rating or a review. Uh, leave leave some comments wherever you're listening to the podcast. Definitely. And look, we before we get to our mailbag, I think there are probably two noteworthy news items, and there may be more. There are probably more, but the two that really caught my eye. So the Kemba Walker news, the first day of training camp, um, it's basically noted that he's not going to be ready uh, because of his knee injury. He needed to have an injection in it, and he'll start to ramp up, it sounds like, in January. Brad Stevens said, um, this is per the Ryan and Goodman podcast, the key to this whole thing with Kemba is just to strengthen the knee and continuing to take this opportunity when we're not playing, when we're not practicing, to really focus on that, very similar to what we did at the beginning of the bubble. I think that there will be a transition like that because of the shortened season. It'll be some time before he's going full speed for us, for sure. So that makes it seem like January isn't even, I won't say a realistic return date, but like he might not be really resuming basketball activities until January. And that ends up being huge for the Celtics. Uh, And I'm sure you feel the same, but you just lost Gordon Hayward. And I'm not going to criticize them for not matching that contract. I think more of the criticism should be, they they now have a trade exception for it. But if the rumors are true that, you know, they could have had a first round pick and Miles Turner and Doug McDermott, and they decided not to take that, that's fair to slam them for. But that deal doesn't really help them out in this situation because to generate offense is going to be I don't look, they still have Jason Tatum, and we know Jalen Brown can get his own offense still, even though he's not the best passer. But this really hurts because you're down two of your three best playmakers. And like now you don't, yeah, you have Jeff T, but you don't have Brad Wanamaker either. And it's worth noting that Boston's offensive rating without Kemba and Gordon Hayward on the floor last year ranked in the 20th percentile. They were in the 17th percentile of half court efficiency. And given that this is largely the same roster, at least on the perimeter, compared to last season, that's just something they're going to have to figure out. Even if you bake in more improvement from Jalen Brown, you're going to be relying an awful lot, I would guess, on Jeff Teague doing things for you at the beginning of the season. And that is not good news because no. it, is, it, has been, it has been a few seconds since Jeff Teague looked like a quality point guard in the NBA. I mean, his... His brief tenure with the Atlanta Hawks, his return to the Hawks last year, did not go well. He was brought in to to kind of shoulder the second unit load and and keep the offense at least somewhat afloat when Trey Young was not on the floor. He did not. He it, it didn't work. Um, I'm I'm not sure what there would be that could give you confidence that he's going to turn the career trajectory around with Boston. And that's just that's not good news for the Celtics that he's immediately going to be tasked with a, a fairly important role unless they're planning on just immediately giving minutes to Peyton Pritchard or counting on Carson Edwards to fill a bigger role. But I, I also think this matters f- from the Kemba Walker long-term perspective. You know, he, he had so many issues with these lower extremities throughout last season, which kind of saw this steady decline in play until the hiatus. He came back from the injuries in the bubble and looked pretty good at first, but then he started to wear down again, and and this is just the latest in a, a line of of issues with his knees. And he he's in his thirties now. You know the the age thirty one season tends to be historically where we see very many point guards, particularly undersized ones, start to fall off a cliff. This is going to be his age thirty season, um, but he will turn thirty one in May. 
so he's getting towards that point and you know he's been so fun to watch for so long I don't want that to come around but I think there there has to be this nagging question in the back of your mind about whether he's going to get back to his all-star level with the Celtics yeah, and look, this is the, since I didn't mention at the top, like this is the same left knee that I think has already been surgically repaired twice in his career, if not maybe even more. He tore his meniscus in the left knee back in 2015, I think it was. So that's a concern. And look, it was a knee that gave him problems this past season too. And as you mentioned, with the age, it's maybe not an issue of, well, what will he look like when he comes back? Because yeah, if he comes back, he should be really good. It's how long. Can he stay on the floor for before this maybe flares up again? And it does sound like Boston, because Danny Ainge kind of admitted, I think it was Danny Ainge, that maybe they brought him back too soon. Uh, That's certainly a red flag. There were speculation flying around over the offseason, just rumblings that were officially reported and not, that they were trying to move him, uh, you know, during, like, once the transaction moratorium was lifted. I don't know if this, if he comes back, if maybe that, and he plays well, if that would expedite that process. But he has three years left on his four-year max deal, and so it's it's a concern when looking at Boston's future because Jalen Tatum, uh, Jalen Tatum's wow, Jalen Brown's extension kicks in this year. Jason Tatum has the max deal that's going to kick in next year. They don't just have this flexibility to go out and really do anything substantial, and they need Kemba Walker to be Kemba Walker. I, it's smart that it sounds like they're going to be extra cautious to where like if we don't see Kemba Walker come back or take the floor with them until February, then so be it. Like the East is forgiving there doesn't seem like there's a clear-cut number two right now it doesn't even feel like maybe there's not even a clear-cut number one depending on how you feel about Milwaukee but they have they have time to to make up the ground so they, they need to play this extra cautious because they can't he's he's now he's always been sort of mission critical but after you lose Hayward and if this deal at all just doesn't look as movable as it did before like he's even more mission critical in that context then I would also be hammering whatever Jason Tatum's MVP odds are right now because he showed in the playoffs that he has that extra playmaking ability that has been slowly developing throughout his three years in the NBA. And it kind of all came to a head during during his 17 postseason appearances. He averaged five assists per game. The ball is going to be in his hands more at the beginning of the season. We know what he's capable of doing. We know how much he's improved from year to year, adding new elements of of his game, just like all the great players seem to do. And I would not be surprised at all if he is tasked with doing so much when Kemba is missing at the end, at the beginning of the season, uh, that that he averages, you know, like twenty five points and and five assists and thrusts his name firmly in the in the MVP conversation which tends to favor players who get there earlier in the year because they have time for that narrative to build. So I'm not saying Jason Tatum is going to win MVP, but whatever the odds are right now, they might be pretty solid values. The trade-off there is the Celtics have to be good enough for him to win MVP, which I feel like could be a concern. If you can bet on the over-under of assists or points that Marcus Smart will average this season, I might take the over right now. I'm not sure if you could bet on such a thing, but I would take the over I tend to avoid betting on sports because I'm I'm terrified of how much I might bet on sports if it goes well at the start. <laughs> so I don't I don't know what the odds are. That's uh, that's my long way of saying that I have no idea what the lines actually are. This he, is an uninformed. He's going to be really good. Take <laughs> they, look. You're going to have to pick betting lines soon. We will be doing win totals uh, over unders. That is the one thing. Rest assured, we will get to and we will convert them to an 82 game equivalent because reading them like in the context of a 72 game season just is wonky. Uh, the two other news items I wanted to ask you about. 
is let's talk about Denver really quick. One, one of my favorite quotes that have come out of training camp from them, and granted we're like maybe 20 minutes into training camp for them. I don't know if you saw, but Jermichael Green said, blowing the three to one re- lead, you knew they, the Nuggets, had heart. It wasn't a tough decision. And that was Jermichael Green choosing to join the Nuggets after opting out of his contract with the Clippers. Uh, that's like major shade being thrown at Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. I love it. I'm totally here for it. But also the it definitely nug- is, and I'm I'm also just I, w- I want to say real fast that I'm just not surprised that you have mobile notifications turned on for any time Jamichael Green does anything like there, that. It just doesn't surprise me. Him there, and Chris Boucher, like if they show up on anything Twitter, Dan gets notified about it. Just this big flashing text comes across his screen. I actually get notified in my soul. I feel it. I don't have any official notifications up. I just get notified in my soul. But Mike Malone, head coach of the Nuggets, did say that Michael Porter is going to have an opportunity to start at the three this year and I like I don't want to like make light of this because you could obviously start Will Barton or Gary Harris there depending on how you want to do it but it's almost like okay well who else are you going to start there really because you lost Jeremy Grant like that's not an option Torrey Craig is no longer with the team so I don't you know maybe does Michael Porter Jr. make sense as a starter this year or are you better off going with what would have been their starting lineup last year where you have Will Barton and Harris in those wing spots. And then now this season, you can bring Michael Porter Jr. off the bench, you know, uh, in a heavier role to kind of anchor that those, the second stringers. I don't know, to be honest. Terrible I, I think podcasting. so much. You're supposed to know everything. I, I, I think so much depends on the level of buy-in that the Nuggets get from him on the defensive end. And we just don't know what that's going to look like. If, if he, continues to play like offense is the only thing that matters as good as he is and can be on that end then no it's probably not a good fit because you really don't need that around Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic if he does accept that there are going to be possessions at a time where he doesn't touch the ball and he's going to exert a lot more energy on the defensive end and show some semblance of awareness then yeah it could be a good fit ultimately though I'm not sure the starting lineups matter as much as the closing lineups. And those are probably going to be dictated by the opponent because Denver still does have a lot of depth throughout this roster and can be malleable and kind of mesh the wings and forwards together in whatever combination works against the current opponent. Yeah. That the latter is probably the more salient issue. And it's, if he doesn't improve too much defensively and like, look, I thought he made that his rotations, at least in the bubble got a little bit better, but if he doesn't make like, strides on that end of the floor you'll probably be seeing like a Barton and Harris play a lot more in closing lineups and then even if they want to go I won't even say smaller but like you know you're not going to see him replace like a Millsap or a Green in closing lineups either and so he could find himself pretty low on that pecking order I as of right now I would probably stick with what the starting lineup would have been last year and was at points last year just because it was so good and I trust Will Barton just a lot more in general. And I don't think if you told me that they didn't have um, Campazzo now in the second unit where you had someone to table set for everybody else, maybe it becomes more important to have someone like Will Barton coming off the bench because he's going to be better at that, even if Porter Jr. is the more malleable scorer. But because you have Morris and Campazzo as options coming off the bench, I almost feel like Michael Porter Jr. makes a little bit more sense because of how good he can be off the ball. And I'd be interested. I'm not saying they'll you know go hockey lineups all the time, but... I'd be interested in seeing Morris, Campazzo, Michael Porter Jr., Jermichael Green, and Bobo play some minutes together. Give me that. Um, or maybe play four of those guys, and I would say minus Bobo, and then one starter, so a Jokic or a Millsap there. Uh, but I, 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 my inclination would be to still bring him off the bench, unless he's just you know lights out in training camp in the preseason, and you're seeing something 
don't want to say transcendent, but magnificent improvement defensively. And let's also not forget that the four primary big men in Denver's rotation, Jokic, Paul Millsap, Jamichael Green, and Bol Bol, if Bol Bol does indeed get a sizable role coming out of training camp, are all competent or better passers, which I, I do think matters as well, just because you know that you can get that facilitating ability from multiple spots, no matter where Porter is playing. Last 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Well, Indeed is here to help. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of, of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it, and fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Last news note before we get to the mailbag. Uh, Stan Van Gundy, head coach of the Pelicans, said that he envisioned Zion playing some three this year. Uh, I saw pictures of Josh Smith going around after that quote and couldn't help but giggle. What do you think of that? Or my actual question is, why is that a terrible decision? <laughs> I mean, I envision myself playing the five this year, but just because I envision something doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. <laughs> I know positions are meaningless, but if you play Zion at the three, it puts an awful lot of pressure on him to hit like wide open threes, even more so than there is right now. And I think the Pelicans are going to be hard up for reliable spacing as it is. I don't need to see a Hayes Adam Zion Williamson lineup. I don't need to see him. Right, and that's what this means. Like the only way that he's going to be playing the three is if Adams and Hayes are on the court together. Maybe Melly, which then, like, like, depending on how you would view that, maybe. But like, why? Right. Why? Why would and, that happen? I, I guess the my my reading on this was that he's kind of like tacitly saying that Zion could be a LeBron James like talent where he could bring the ball up the court and handle it on the wings and stuff more than like anything about lineup combinations. That's that was my initial read. And maybe that was just too optimistic because Stan Van Gundy is way too smart to actually be dabbling with such a ridiculously oversized lineup in today's NBA. He showed some inclinations in in Detroit and I'm not saying he's not smart. His analyst, um, the analysis he provided was fantastic. Would it? (laughs) Jackson Hayes is the four? No, no thanks. The and, I mean, anything with Steven Adams counts as a wall, though. I, that's fair. Look, and I've seen Pelicans fans kind of talk about how the, the, people have just been concerned about the Pelican spacing in general, and they're saying that Adams and Zion are going to be able to create space with their sturdy screens. And I don't disagree, but that presupposes that there are good shooters around them, too. And yes, you have J.J. Redick. And yes, you have Josh Hart. I will throw Brandon Ingram in there, even though last year was his first high-volume three-point shooting season. But like, that's a risk there, too, if he doesn't match that. You have Eric Bledsoe, who shot under 34% on wide-open threes last year, I believe. And then Lonzo Ball, who his three-point splits last year were were topsy-turvy. And so it matters the personnel you put around them. And the thing that this clues me into, talking about Zion at the three, it kind of shows the glaring lack of wings on this team. Brandon Ingram is the only, like, 
true wing because he's really the only player in that six seven like six eight sweet spot range. And you know, Josh Hart, if you want to consider him a wing, that's fine. I'm not going to board the Sendarius Thornwell bringing him back bandwagon. You can go smaller. I I get it. Like, look, Lonzo Ball is 6'5 himself or 6'6 too. So he's bigger, but like, he's not a wing. So you have Ingram and Hart. Let's just call them their lone true wings. If you're playing Zion at the three, it speaks to maybe like the flawed roster construction with this. And uh, I'm, I am interested to see how they'll, how they'll play. I, I think they can be a good team with the personnel that they have, but if you want to play Zion at the three, I think it's going to fail miserably. If those are lineups, that would be my honest to God guess, because I do think that they're going to need a heavy lift um, to have adequate spacing in general, where they're, if you're going to play Zion and Steven Adams together, just as your four and your five, I think your optimal way to flesh that out would be Ingram, Hart, and I'd probably say Redick. Just use Ingram and Redick as your de facto point guards, or it's going to have to be like a ball. Like three of those four players have to be on the court with them if you want to say you trust ball shooting, which is fine. Agreed. Stan, if you're listening to the pod, to this podcast, which I know you are, just go ahead and lean into it and just go ahead and play Billy Hernan Gomez at the three and then put Zion at the two. Just go really big. Yeah, and I mean, look, at that point, like, why even stop there? Like, you go all big. Zion, Nicola Melli, Steve Adams, Jackson Hayes, Willie Hernan Gomez, done. There's your lineup. If Ben Simmons can play point guard, what's stopping Zion from playing the one? That's what I want to know. Look, if you had four just, shooters around Zion, I'd be all for it. But I'm not sure you can find four on this roster, as you were alluding to. If so. you wanted to, how would you build that lineup? It would have to be Redick, Ball, Ooh, Ingram, that's, Hart. That's the clo- or maybe Melly, if you consider him a shooter. Even though I don't think was- you put Ball on the court then. So, yeah, I guess it would be Zion at the one, Redick at the two, Hart at the three, Ingram at the four, Melly at the five. Does that work? And, like, look, we're calling Melly a shooter. He shot 33.5% from long range last year. As a rookie, he's like, maybe he's just going to be better suited to it, but... Yeah, he in theory he at least shoots three. So yes, you can you can get to four shooters around Zion. I actually this doubt is my new dream lineup. Your dream I want, lineup. It, I want it to happen now. Yeah, I want <laughs> it to happen now. Uh, look, let's get to some of these mailbag questions. We didn't have as many as normal, but uh, we thank the people um, who threw it in. We and look, we begged for solicitations too. Maybe everyone's preoccupied with training camp, but we wanted to do one less mailbag before we kind of hit the ground running with these you know previews and like the obligatory content, as I'll call it. Uh, first question comes from. Hulk Ronan, what in particular stands out about Chicago's decision to return the same roster with purely a coaching change? Anything in the numbers suggesting where any of these guys might particularly improve under Billy Donovan? I'm looking for a glimmer of light here. I think it says terrible things about Jim Boylan. Just that this this front office that is now a new front office led by Arturis Karnasovas wants to make changes but not, but not by making roster changes. You know, by by bringing in Billy Donovan at head coach, by altering the front office, by largely counting on internal improvement from the incumbents. It's I think it's a vote of confidence for the players who are in place, and maybe an admission that last season's uh, misfortunes were, in some part at least, due to the youth and injuries that pervaded throughout this roster you know if if Laurie Markkinen is healthy for the entire season if Otto Porter Jr. is healthy for the entire season then you can potentially view a playoff lineup with those two Wendell Carter Jr. Zach Levine and Kobe White all of whom have shown at least some potential to be starting caliber players in the NBA so I, I I don't think that the Bulls are ready to make some massive leap but it does seem to indicate that internally 
they view last year's playoff aspirations as something that could just be pushed back a year because the pieces are still in place to make that kind of run. Yeah, that's all fair. I mean, I was a little bit surprised. Like, I know we say they largely kept the same roster intact, which they did. Um, added Patrick Williams, let Chris Dunn go. I thought that was a little bit weird just because they do need him defensively. Picked up Garrett Temple, who's clearly an inferior defender, but it could probably play make a little bit better than him. Um, some changes I could expect, and I don't know how positive these are, but I don't know that we'll see as aggressive um like a pick and roll coverage from the bulls on defense. And maybe that's a good thing because they were dead last in um, free throw rate allowed to opponents last year. It also wouldn't surprise me uh, if we won see just based on the personnel that maybe Billy Donovan does a little bit better of a job getting the bulls to operate in their offense uh, sooner in the shot clock. Maybe we see more pushing there and I wouldn't be surprised to see more three-point attempts overall. I know Chicago was 13th in three-point attempt rate last year, but when you kind of look at the personnel, like I feel like maybe uh, since Chicago was saying they want to extend Larry Marketing right now, maybe he's emboldened more. I think the one guy you look at from this roster who could really improve, um, I don't know if it's because of Billy Donovan or just from escaping uh, Jim Boylan, the, the human wet blanket for him, but Wendell Carter Jr. Like, let's see him maybe look at the rim when he catches the ball. Let's see him, like, operate with actual three-point volume uh, under an attempt per game last year. So if he's going to be healthy, that's the player that I look at on this roster who I feel like could be really empowered more so under Billy Donovan than he was under Jim Boylan. And maybe there'll be a ton of improvements somewhere, but that would be the guy that I would zero in on and say, if you're looking for a complete bright spot, uh, that's the player that I immediately look toward. Do you remember who Wendell Carter Jr. was frequently compared to uh, coming into the NBA draft? I do, but I won't spoil it because I'm sure you're about to tell us. It was Al Horford. That's why I thought they should trade him. Al Horford? Trade for him. You remember what? who coached Al Horford at Florida? No, no idea. Oh, yeah, it was it was Billy Donovan. Look, they should have traded for Al Horford. Who better to mentor baby Al Horford than actual Al Horford? Just throwing it out there. It's a lot of money to pay a mentor. <laughs> um, I'm like... I, you know who seems super important to the Bulls now, though, just because you do let Chris Dunn go? You didn't really add a wing defender this offseason, unless you consider Garrett Temple that. I still think Patrick Williams is going to be sort of, and I'm really high on him, I think he'll be better off guarding bigs, like if you wanted to roll with him as a small ball five as opposed to putting him at the three, but it seems like they are going to play him at the three. And so they're going to need Otto, I go out and party and pour shots of Kirkland to brand champagne during a pandemic, Porter Jr., to be healthy and like really anchor their wing defense because Chris Dunn was like played a lot of three for them last year. And yes, you can say Patrick Williams will take some of those minutes. You could say Garrett Temple will take some of those minutes, but they don't necessarily have anyone to readily replace the value that Chris Dunn provided there. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'd lean towards a bad thing, but if our reporter is healthy, like maybe that helps them sort of navigate Chris Dunn's absence. Yeah. It's definitely one of those additions through availability. Like they didn't bring in a new player, but realistically their rotation is going to look plenty different just because they have access to Otto Porter Jr. I can't remember that really long nickname you just gave him, but I hope it sticks. I also want to say that I might be the last person remaining on Denzel Valentine Island, but I'm excited to see him get a shot under a new coach who might actually let him play when he's healthy because he is still a fantastic shooter, a quality playmaker, and has some defensive potential. Uh, I, I still think that he has a long-term place in the league, even though that does not seem to be the popular opinion anymore. 
maybe that's not why you let Chris Dunn go. I think everyone would have expected it to be the other way around. Um, you give Chris Dunn his qualifying offer and you let Denzel Valentin go, but it ended up being the other way around, like I just said. That's why I sort of thought like maybe we'll see this team be more freewheeling and chuck even more threes because that's why you would want to have Denzel Valentine. Um, and maybe, you know, him coming back and Chris Dunn like leaving, that just hints towards him having a, a bigger role in general. But uh, the Bulls should be fairly intriguing. Like, I don't know if I, I don't want to, you know, get too far into the weeds since we'll have a Bulls preview eventually. But, like, do you view them as a team that's going to contend for a play-in spot? Like, in seven, eight, nine, ten, you do? I do. I don't think they'll get there, but I think that they will contend for it. This is this is not going to be an embarrassment of a team. I, I do believe in Kobe White. They have some intriguing depth pieces. Uh, it's it's so health dependent, which is questionable during this season in particular, where with the uh, quickly ramped up start, we could see more soft tissue is- issues like we've seen in other leagues and in past lockout seasons. Um, but the pieces are in place to, to at least push towards a 500 record. Let's move on to another question. This is an interesting one from Michael J, loyal listener, as we know, retweets a lot of our promos. Thank you, Michael. Who would you rather have, Julius Randle or Kyle Kuzma? Is neither an option. Oh, come on. I feel like this is... No, no. It's, uh, I think it's it's Julius Randle. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it's, it's Julius Randle for me just because he, you know, his the numbers he's put up with a very bad New New Orleans Pelicans team in 2018-19 and with the 2019-20 New York Knicks are both impressive from a per-game standpoint, but they're also just like a little misleadingly positive because he's never realistically going to have that type of role on a good team, which is presumably what we're trying to build with this question. But he does fill a very specific uh, niche as a great rebounder, as a aggressive physical scorer who might be a little too dependent on his left hand, but does manage to get to his spots. I'm not sure what Kyle Kuzma's strengths are right now, and I'm not sure he does either. He's not a good defender. He doesn't ever look to pass. He has the occasional scoring explosions, but he looks to shoot far too frequently. And the self-awareness is something that I'm going to value if I'm building in a vacuum between two players who probably have fairly similar values. So I'm actually going to push back really hard here and say to me the clear choice is Kyle Kuzma because he's far more plug-and-play. Um, I think where we diverge the most, I think Kuzma's gotten a lot better defensively, particularly on the ball. And so to have that more of that, there, here's the word that you love when I use, optionality defensively, where you can use him against twos, threes, and some fours at this point. Like Randall is a is a terrible defender. You can't use – first of all, he's terrible no matter where he's guarding, but you can't even entertain – playing him at the five unless you're just going to allow parades toward the basket and I think it's fair to question what Kuzma's offensive strengths are at this point because he's not a great shooter but he had moments of streakiness in the bubble and he seems like he's getting used to operating without the ball more and so if you want to look at a from scratch creator then yeah Julius Randle's probably better there but Kuzma's still going to give you more range on offense too, because you can't trust Julius Randle's three-point shot. And I'm certainly going to trust Kyle Kuzma to jack up in off the dribble three before I would trust Julius Randle to do so too. So if you needed to have someone as your number one option, I could see, first of all, that's a terrible spot to be in, a choice between Kyle Kuzma and Randle. But in that scenario, that's where I could see picking Randle making sense. Uh, just just to clarify, Julius Randle finished 53rd in DRPM per ESPN among power forwards, and Kyle Kuzma finished 73rd last year. 
Look, Julius Randle is going to get more rebounds, and that's why that like might help. <laughs> I know. I'm not. I'm not really suggesting that he's a better defender, but I don't think like I, I. I still don't see Kuzma as even a passable one, aside from some on-ball possessions. But if I like that we're disagreeing, though, this is my, good. We don't my whole thing is disagree. like if if Kyle Kuzma, when this happens. if Kyle Kuzma gives you five to ten strong defensive possessions a game, that's five to ten more than you're going to get from Julius Randle <laughs> per game. Yeah, but how how quickly is he going to squander those with hero ball shots or refusals to pass when he touches it? I feel like Randall's going to get tunnel vision just as well, too. And like when you're not operating yeah, with the ball as much, when since Kuzma's not operating with the ball as much, like Julius Randall's tunnel vision is more detrimental. We need to throw this to the listeners: Julius Randall or Kyle Kuzma? Who you got? It's it's we, an interesting one, and we'd appreciate answers from non-Lakers fans. I love you, Lakers fans, but like you're going to pick the current Laker, and who's also happens to be the right answer in this case. But non-Lakers <laughs> fans, Kyle Kuzma or Julius Randall? The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season, from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Next question comes from, and I apologize for butchering the pronunciation, um, Franco Saviar. Um, do you think the Hornets should have traded for Russell? I'm assuming he means Russell Westbrook and not D'Angelo Russell, instead of signing Gordon Hayward to a massive contract. And where do you think the Hornets will end up in the standings at the end of the season? So first part of that, Adam, do you think that they should have just traded for Russell Westbrook instead of signing Gordon Hayward? Absolutely not. You know, I, Russell Westbrook's contract is... Maybe shorter. worse than Gordon Hayward's new one. It is shorter. Um, it is a more egregious salary payout, but he doesn't fit with this roster. Like you're you're looking for shooting. You already have the playmaking guards and Terry Rozier and Devontae Graham and then the newly drafted LaMelo Ball. Why would you want to add another high possession guard to that mix? Gordon Hayward makes a lot more sense so that Possessions can start from different spots within the half court because he has that versati- that versatility, the, the optionality, to use your favorite word. Um, it wasn't a good value for him, but he does make sense for the roster at least. Um, whether he fits with the timeline is a different question because this Hornets team isn't ready to compete for a playoff spot even in the Eastern Conference. And that wouldn't change with Russell Westbrook either, who's even older. So no, like... The, of the two bad options, giving Gordon Hayward $120 million over four years was the, the far better one. Right. And so Russell Westbrook's contract, it spans three more years, is larger than Hayward's. He's owed uh, – Russell Westbrook has three years and $141.1 million left. I'll double-check that right now. Bring 132.6. Um, I don't know why I keep getting that number screwed up. So that's um, $12.6 million more than Hayward's four-year commitment. I don't really think that matters because you could probably argue, like, well, then just get the commitment out of the way. Uh, I agree with you that Hayward's clearly the better fit, and he's not going to infringe upon the development of LaMelo Ball or just the overall value um, of Devontae Graham. He wouldn't hurt Terry Rozier as much because of how often he played off the ball last year. But just looking at the roster in the macro – Hayward's 
just such a cleaner fit. Last year, 8.6% of Westbrook's field goal attempts were catch-and-shoot threes. He converted 29.1% of those. Compare that to Gordon Hayward, 21.9% of his shot attempts were catch-and-shoot threes, on which he uh, shot 42.5%. And so there's that aspect of it. I think the only way you could make a case for Westbrook is that maybe, I don't know if Houston would have accepted this, but would they have done Batum for Westbrook, like Batum and Phil, or Batum and then some of the cap space for Westbrook straight up, and then that way you didn't stretch and wave Batum and are paying him $9 million for the next three years. So if you valued getting that flexibility back sooner, maybe that's the case for Westbrook. But I think in that scenario, you're almost hurting your long-term development in two ways. Not just one, it's obvious with LaMelo Ball's development would be my guess. But two, uh, Russell Westbrook might get you to the playoffs and not to a play-in spot where you could still just qualify for the lottery anyway while getting there. So he might make you a seven or an eight seed, whereas Hayward, I don't think is going to impact your trajectories that much because he won't have as heavy an influence over the game. And maybe that's not an actual concern with Westbrook, but that would be something else to consider. And this brings up a good point. I had actually, I I don't know if you got any direct messages, but I got three direct messages about our Charlotte Hornets takes um, when we were doing winners and losers from the offseason. One was from a fellow Blue Wire podcaster, very respectful, uh, host the, the Hornets podcast, uh, for Blue Wire, and just said, and the point was, of the three DMs that I got, was basically like, what were they going to do? And sorry, Richie Randall is, I don't know why I didn't mention his name. He hosts the Busby pod for Blue Wire. The point was basically that, what are you, else are you going to use that cap space on, if not for Hayward? Cap space is not as um, valuable in Charlotte as it is to other markets. And I, I tend to agree, but when you also had a stretch and wave Batum, I think that changes the context of the signing. And it was such a massive overpay, and it was for four years. Like, if we were looking at three years and $90 million, I might be able to get on board. Um, it, the idea, I won't say ideal, but the best scenario for them would have been if you can get three years, $90 million, and it didn't take stretching and waving Batum. Like, that just makes this look completely different. So I'm not evaluating this in the context of, oh, they're not going to have cap space when all these stars are free agents in 2021. It just seems like it's going to end up being maybe not year one, but years two, three, and four, like those are going to be ultra questionable. And I think that puts it kindly when looking at how this deal ages. Yeah, I think the way I would think about that is, you know, if you go to like Target or something, you know, wearing your mask and staying socially distant, of course, um, and, and you see something that you don't have any need for, but it's on sale, like <laughs> might as well use the money. Like Gordon Hayward wasn't on sale, though. That's the issue. Like you're buying something that you don't need that is going to age poorly and you're still going to be left paying for. So like, yeah, like maybe maybe cap space isn't as useful in Charlotte as it might be in other markets. But that doesn't mean that you have to tie it all up for the next few years in a player who isn't really going to help with your trajectory. Like that's that's my biggest qualm with this. Like, yeah, he helps them develop a little bit more. He gives the the young guards another option, another outlet uh, option within the half court and transition. But like you're still paying this guy $30 million as he ages in a, it's just not a good contract. Like chip away at, at the progress, make good value signings rather than trying to use all the cap space at once. Like you don't have to spend cap space. Also like this would have been the year to be bad in that market because you're not, you're probably not going to have fans in the arena, at least anything close to full capacity all year. Just be bad. This isn't about putting in butts in seats this year. Quickly. The second part of that question, where do you see them ending up? in the standings we'll say obviously relative to the eastern conference i think i have them in like that that bulls maybe orlando magic tier 
where like they could be competing for a back-end play-in spot. I think we can safely say they're going to be better than the New York Knicks and Detroit Pistons, maybe the Cleveland Cavaliers. Those would be uh, the only three teams I'd say they're, they're definitively be better than. Yeah, yeah. And I like a lot of the individual pieces on this roster. I really enjoy watching Miles Bridges. Um, I, th- I think that P.J. Washington has a lot of a lot of potential to continue growing. Gordon Hayward is a good fit. Grant Riller was a great draft pick. I think I'm legally obligated to mention him at least once per episode. But the center rotation is, is just a disaster, and I'm not sure that this is a cohesive blend of talents quite yet. I think that they're, they're starting to move in the right direction, but this is not the year to expect a leap. And I would be prepared for them to be worse than expected because I think you can talk yourself into a lot of different aspects of this team. Like, what if they keep Devontae Graham? What if Hayward's healthy? They've already said they're going to play P.J. Washington at the five more. That can get interesting if you get past the rebounding aspect there. If they give adequate control of the offense to LaMelo Ball as a rookie, like, things are going to be ugly. That's just the way this typically works. So I would brace, I, I would put their ceiling at the 10 seed, and I don't expect them to get there this year. Maybe I'll be wrong, but... We'll have to see. We have three Frank Nielakina questions, so I'm going to loop them all together. Um, one is is a fresh Frank Nielakina question. Comes from Fred uh, at 1933 was a bad year. Could Frank Nielakina and Michael K. Gilchrist be the best combo wing defenders in the NBA next season? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? That duo is sure. Yeah. I mean, like, there's no pairing of like Paul George and Kawhi Leonard or anything. So yeah, yes, Fred, we think they can be. Um, the last, I think these two are more serious questions. Um, this one comes from at underscore Ometa, uh, without a name in the bio. Why is Frank clamping hard and not, not talked about more? Honestly, I don't know. I think it proves he should have made all NBA first team, uh, all defense first team this year. Honestly, no, you, can't talk you mean about both. It. Yeah. You I mean, mean both of those things. How is he not top 10 in MVP voting? But look, I look, Frank, Yoki's on balls defense is actually good. And that sort of leads me into, um, the larger question, which is, oh, and I I have the, the wrong tweet pulled up for it. So this is like real time me scrambling to try and find the, the well, right. While end. you're looking for that, I'll just say that if you only count the legal possessions where Frank Natilakina plays, then the Knicks would absolutely make the playoffs. Exactly. Um, look, oh, so from Joe, ISO Joe NYK, give me good Frank stats to brighten my day. I look, I'm about to tee I'm about to tee this up. Is everybody ready? I'm I'm bowing out. I'm gonna go take a quick nap. So just uh shoot me a text when you're done. In all three seasons that Frank Nilakina has been in the league, the Knicks have been substantially better defensively with him on the floor. Their defensive their defensive rating swing with him on the floor as a rookie, plus four there are four point six points per possessions better defensively, eighty-sixth percentile. Sophomore year, one point two points points per 100 possessions better defensively 63rd percentile this is relative to the position that he played last year 3.4 points better defensively per 100 possessions that's in the 77th percentile something that i also feel like goes a little bit unnoticed frank nilakina has been like a very i don't you're not going to call him the best iso defender but he can make really good reads as a pick and roll defender in every single season that he has been in the nba uh the points per possession that pick and roll ball handlers average against him has been so low that Frank Nielakina ranks in the 65th percentile of defense on those plays, at least in all three of his seasons in the league. Like that's like, could we just talk about like, that's legit. Now I think where people are going to give up on Frank Nielakina is like, what does he give you on offense? I think there's like a smoothness to his game, but without any rhyme or reason, if that makes any sense, where he dribbles, like he has good feel, but his decision-making in traffic is just not great at all but what i will say 
to keep in mind. You can question his jump shot. He seems a little comfortable, you know, pulling up off the dribble. Like, that could be okay. What I will say, after the All-Star break last year, he shot 42.1% on pull-up twos. Not terrible, not great. Here's the key. Almost a third of his shots after the All-Star break came as catch-and-shoot threes. He converted 44.4% of those. I'm not saying that he's going to make the three-point contest. I'm not saying that defenses are going to guard him, but if he's taking ultra-wide-open threes and hitting them at anything close to that clip, play my man 30-plus minutes a game. This has to be the year. And if he's buried on the depth chart behind Alec Burks, Austin Rivers, RJ Barrett, look, they have equity in him. I totally understand that one. But Alfred Payton, you know, Jacob Evans, Dennis Smith Jr., I'm going to start, I've probably already called for it, but I'll get serious about he needs to be traded. Like, that would be a classic second draft guy where put him on another team. I think he succeeds a great deal. So those are your Frank Nielakina stats. He is an NBA rotation player, and I hope the Knicks use him extensively this year. Just going to drop, fake drop this mic. No one can see it, but I just dropped it. Adam is giving me a silent applause. Um, As you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about that. Let's get to, we only have two more questions left. Where do you rank the Blazers in the West, Adam? This comes from Andre Bobrick. This is a, this is the toughest question that we got by far. I uh, I struggled with this one for a while, but I, I think the ceiling for them is fifth. The ceiling? The realistic ceiling, let's say. Like, sure, like, if everything goes perfectly, like, maybe they can rise even higher. But, like, the realistic ceiling, I think, is fifth behind... The Lakers, the Clippers, the Nuggets, and the Mavericks. Wow. Uh, so I would say the Lakers, and even if they end up not really care, both the Lakers and the Clippers probably won't care much about the regular season. I would say those two teams are definitively better than them. I definitely think there's a chance the Nuggets still belong there, even after losing Jeremy Grant. But like ceiling-wise, uh, the only teams I'm prepared to say that are going to finish with a better regular season record than the Portland Trailblazers in the Western Conference are the Lakers, and I think I'm going to throw the Clippers in there. Like, I I think Portland's ceiling realistically is number two because you look at it as there's wow. going to be variance in the way that the Clippers and the Lakers treat the regular season. So maybe there's a chance that one of them is just not too serious about it. I don't know which one. Um, but, like, I don't – yeah, you could talk me into the Jazz being better. You could talk me into the Nuggets being better. If the Rockets keep James Harden, there's obviously the Mavericks aspect of this, but Kristaps Porzingis isn't going to play till January there. Uh, Rick Carlisle's already talking about like maybe monitoring Luca's minutes and appearances a little bit more. I think Portland's ceiling is is two. I'm, I wouldn't pick them there, but I would say I think Portland. This would be my prediction. Portland gets a top four seed in the West this year, unless they suffer wow, a Damian okay. Lillard injury. That is my Portland prediction. I love I love Portland's offseason. I think that they made a ton of really sensible moves. The the trade for Robert Covington, uh, bringing in Harry Giles. Uh, Derek Jones Jr., re-signing Gary Trent Jr., like re-signing Carmelo Anthony. These were all good decisions, but I still have questions about the wing and forward rotation just because we're talking about a lot of guys who have had significant injury issues or are moving out of their prime or already out of them. And I just I worry that there's going to be too much pressure on that Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum backcourt still. Um, Yusuf Nurkic helps a ton having him available for the whole season. And I do really like this roster. Like I, I don't want 
this might inevitably be viewed as me being too pessimistic about the Blazers. I think in hindsight, ceiling was probably the wrong word. I was more looking at like a realistic ceiling projection. I swayed you. Um, but yeah, like, always. Every time, I, like I'm fully convinced that Frank Natilakina is an MVP candidate now <laughs> after the 10-minute the diatribe there. But yeah, I, I, I think that there. I just have a couple too many questions for Portland to, to move to move it up into that top four. There's uh, uh, what, some of the things that really like seriously sway me about them is Yusuf Nurkic was just so much better in the bubble than I thought he was going to be coming he back from a really compound good. leg fracture. Yeah, like he was really good. There are some questions about how they flesh out lineups. Like is who's going to get more time as the backup five, Giles or Cantor? What about Collins? Does he factor in there once he's healthy? But to, the other thing would be the backup point guard rotation. Neil O'Shea continues to like not sign backup point guards, and if he, they've ever had one, it's like on accident, basically. So those are fair questions, but like their wing rotation is actually deep for the first time, like since before the well, Batum Wesley Matthews days. It's deep, but it's it's deep with question marks too. Like no, who who in that wing rotation are you fully confident is going to have a great year? Robert Covington. And I think they're filled with guys where, with the exception of Rodney Hood, you know what you're going to get from. Where it's Gary Trent Jr. going to shoot the lights out of the ball, has a little off-the-dribble pizzazz to his game, and yeah, he'll be overmatched defensively against some wings, but he's going to hustle there. Uh, Derek Jones Jr. can't shoot, fireball in transition. He'll, he can attack closeouts, but he's going to just give you a lot defensively at the 2, 3, and 4 spots. Uh, Robert Covington, again, I think he's one of the best team defenders in basketball. If you want to say his health is a question, that is fair. Um, he'll probably shoot at least league average from three. I think you can be confident in that, looking at who's going to be setting him up. Uh, Ronnie Hood is coming back from the Achilles injury. He was shooting over 55% on catch-and-shoot threes when he went down. That's not a part of his game that should suffer too much. And then Carmelo Anthony, is he arguably the biggest question mark on this? Is How does he handle coming off the bench? Like, Does he need to be in rhythm? Um, with the amount of time they let him work with the ball in his hands, maybe he doesn't like need to start. So if he comes off the bench and that helps him. There are questions, but I feel like there's enough certainty or enough upside in all of those questions to be like, well, they can like their two, three, four rotation is dangerous. And I do feel like they have a lot more lineup choices at their disposal than last season. One of which, and I will say this on the Blazers preview pod, I wonder if they can get to a point where they're can play mellow at the five for a little bit, and you have Derek Jones Jr. and Robert Covington in front of him to help out defensively. You have Damian Lillard on the court, and then you know you can have CJ McCollum too, or do you kind of leverage defense a little bit more and put Gary Trent Jr. in that spot? And those are just all these different types of options they didn't have last season. And to just have more like versatility at the five in general, because Nurkic is back, um, you're not dealing with Hassan Whiteside's like, yes, passing was better, but it's a lack of passing and just not as much mobility on the defensive end. You have Giles there. And then Canner like was not, he's not a good defender, but like he survived in their pick and roll scheme when he was there in 2019. So I'm, I have a lot of faith in this team, I guess. Maybe it's too much. We shall see. Yeah. I think with all those questions, like it's easy to, to, to hope that they all have the right answers, but like, what if Rodney Hood isn't the same? coming back from the Achilles injury? What if Derek Jones Jr. struggles in a bigger role? What if Carmelo Anthony in the playoffs where he was almost unplayable at times and the team was so much worse with him on the floor, what if that's a more realistic picture than that initial excitement uh, that he brought to Portland when he signed there? Uh, what if Yusuf Nurkic can't play in all 72 games? What if uh, Gary Trent Jr. was just a flash in the pan and the, the sample isn't large enough to have meaningful conclusions. Like there, there are the negative spins on those two. And I think that those are legitimate enough that I just, I still have some concerns because I don't see 
one totally sure thing, even with Robert Covington, where he's about to turn 30. He's had some injury issues. He shot 33.5% from three-point range last year, 31.5% with Houston. Like, what if he's not a good shooter? Then that's going to starkly diminish his value, even if he is one of the best team defenders, which he is. Like, I still have just a couple too many concerns to, uh, to be confident in elevating them too much higher. Their floor, though, is still that of a playoff team, right? Like, it would take something Absolutely. catastrophic Absolutely. for them to not, like, actually. It would take a Damian Lillard major injury. That, that, I can't even say that. Right. Like, I'm stumbling over my words because I just don't want that to ever happen. This question was made for you, and it's our final one. Toby asks, will the Hawks' plans to build around Trey Young actually be successful? Can they legitimately build a contender with him as their number one option slash best player? I hope so. <laughs> I don't know so. <laughs> I would I would highly recommend reading Michael Pena's piece on 538 that came out a couple of hours before we're recording this podcast about how the Atlanta Hawks are going all in on offense. Uh, it's an approach that is a deviation from where they initially seemed to be going when they added Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter and seemed to be trying to put great potential defenders around Trey Young. Now it's we're just going to lean in the opposite direction and give him exactly what he needs on the offensive end. This this roster, you know, in, in that piece, Pena says that he thinks that it could be a top three offense in the Eastern Conference, a top 10 in the NBA. I actually kind of think that might not be optimistic enough just because all these pieces do fit together so well with the catch and shoot, the secondary creators, the pick and roll, the pick and pop options that Young has at his disposal. But whether that can translate into a championship caliber team, I'm not sure unless you manage to hit on some of the defensive pieces. So if Reddish and Hunter do develop, um, as we started to see in the second half of their rookie seasons, if Kevin Herter is still a, a prominent piece of the future, if Onyeka Kongwu turns into a great switchable defensive five, then yeah, this roster could have that type of upside if everything goes correct. I don't think that you should ever rule out championship contention because of a style you can make any style work if a team fully commits to having Zion the best three style ever that might be pushing <laughs> a little too far but you know if, if a team fully commits to playing big defensive basketball and has the right pieces to do it then yeah you can win that way if a team wants to win games 150 to 140 which the hawks may very well want to do that can also work as long as you're winning games if you want to have a more balanced approach fine it's like so in the NFL right now, right? We see the pass happy league just continues to deviate away from valuing running backs. But if you build a team around the right running back and still find a need to establish the run, like it can still work. There are different ways to win games. And I don't think you should ever rule one out just because it hasn't worked in the past. Like the league shifts, teams zig where others zag. And Trey Young is a transcendent offensive talent who could very well lead the number one offense in the NBA, maybe not this season, but in the future. And if you put the right mediocre at best defensive pieces around him, it, it can still work. Well, that's the key. I think the model they've taken right now, no. it's If you're looking at it through the lens of title contention, I don't think it'll be successful. If their goal is to just make the playoffs right now and go from there, I do think it could easily be successful. Do I think Trey Young can be the number one or best player on championship team? I have no question that he can in my mind. I don't know if he ever will be because it depends on the talent around him, but some of the swing pieces 
uh, here would be, you already mentioned uh, Reddish and Hunter. One of them just needs to hit. I have more faith in Reddish just based off how he shot towards the end of, of last year. Seems like he has better feel on the ball, too. Uh, so you need to hit on one of them. I think Onyeka Okungu becomes like super important because he has a higher defensive ceiling than Clint Capella. And then the other thing that I think has to be mentioned now is they need to have like kind of another big swing trade in them because they're done, you would assume, making those swings in the draft based off the roster that they have. And yet their most prominent players right now, like when you look at Capella, when you look at Bogdanovich, when you look at Gallinari, Rondo, Chris Dunn, the guy, some of the guys are going to be getting the most minutes, like the, the ton of upside isn't there. And so you can say, yes, if one of Reddish and Hunter hit and then Okungwu hits, like maybe they get there. And I'm, I don't mean to not mention John Collins here. It, it needs to be another two-way guy for me. And like that's what they have to have that type of trade in them, a higher-end two-way guy, in addition to all the things that I just mentioned. And they do have the assets to go after that, but it depends on who becomes available. We don't know, like based off the trade market right now, I don't know who that would be, but there's always like different scenarios in play. And so that would be their path to title contention. But I do think that you can do that while Trey Young is your best player. Maybe one of the questions with him, like the defense is just put up, like we can, let's just write it off is will like what happens when he is moving off the ball he's statistically one of the most efficient catch and shoot guys in the league he just never does it and so when you take the ball out of his hands um does he kind of have the gravitational pull that Stephen Curry does when he's off the ball and if he does then that answers an unequivocal yes but if he needs to play in the vein of a Luka Doncic or a James Harden like where he needs to be on the ball constantly I do think that diminishes his value and maybe where it doesn't for them is just because they're going to hold up better positionally on defense than he ever could. And you don't have to be as specific, I guess, about the guys you put around those two as you would Trey Young in, again, that development scenario. To go back to Toby's original set of questions, will the Hawks' plans to build around Trey Young actually be successful? Maybe. It seems like they're on a good path. This is definitely a playoff team. It has the potential to win a playoff round, maybe even two. It is a very cohesive unit on offense on paper. We have not seen this is a lot of huge changes for how this team is going to play compared to last season. So maybe with some optimism, can they legitimately build a contender with him as the number one option and best player? Absolutely. Like that's that's the part where I feel like we can give an unequivocal yes, because Trey Young is talented enough and this style of play can work. Whether it will is the question that has yet to be answered. That does it for us, though. That's The Hawks might be like, one of the three most interesting teams this season, if we're just being like regular season teams, if we're being honest. But that does it for us here. Uh, went over the time limit we planned on as per usual. But if you have not yet, please, please, pretty please remember to subscribe to us wherever you're getting your podcasts and download every episode. Also, regardless of whether you use iTunes or not, go to iTunes, search Hardwood Knox, throw us a five-star rating, write a review. It can have constructive criticism. We're open to everything, but the five-star ratings are important. Those help us out enough. We don't have anywhere near as many ratings as we do listeners, so please help us inflate those numbers. With that, though, I leave you all with a shout-out to the one, the only, future... John Collins. No, Frank Nielakina. Future NBA All-Star, even if it's not with the Knicks, Frank Nielakina.